0: From the Free Speech Project at Georgetown University, this is Speaking Freely. I'm Sanford Unger. Today, some of America's college and university campuses have turned into major battlegrounds over free speech issues. One typical confrontation took place in November 2015 at the University of Missouri, where student protests turned into shoving matches between a student journalist taking photos and protesters who were camped out and demanded respect for their so-called private space in the middle of the campus. I have a job to do. I'm documenting hey, hey, hey. this for, for a National you News this. is a first
1: amendment that protects okay, your right you to stand want, here no, wait, mine. Not, do, her. A
0: few it's moments later, a student videotaping the incident approached Melissa Click, who at the time was an assistant professor at the university.
1: Are uh, you documenting? What are you I'm doing? Undocumenting. Okay, well... You going, need to get out! Walk, walk you need to get out. This is public property. And it's yeah, I know that's a really good one. I'm a communication faculty, and I really get that argument. But you need to go. You need to go.
0: On this edition of speaking, speaking Freely, we explore some of the current free speech issues in the academic community. Our guest is Joe Cohn, the Legislative and Policy Director for FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. He described FIRE as a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that defends free speech and due process for students and faculty on college campuses around the country.
1: Historically, we've done that in two ways by proactively working with universities before there's a particular problem while working with their policies, and also engaging with universities after there's been a controversy defensively to defend students and faculty when those rights have been threatened. This issue of working with universities, some
0: universities think that you actually have an effect of intimidating them because you give these ratings, these red lights, yellow lights and green lights if I'm not mistaken, and that there's a sort of club held over their heads to uh, try to satisfy fire and not end up on the wrong list.
1: I don't know that it's a particular club. We hope that schools want to get green lights and don't want to have red lights. We use it to make sure that students and prospective students understand clearly what their rights are. So do you think there are people who, when they're looking at colleges
0: and universities, they're going to apply to, do you think there are people who look at the FIRE ratings
1: before applying or before deciding to enroll? We get regular emails from members of the public saying, yeah, you know, I'm looking at schools for my, you know, daughter who's graduating high school this year. I only want her to go to a green light school. Do you have any advice for us? And we love responding to those emails. We hope that more students look at what their actual rights will be on the ground before they select uh, schools. We think it's a important criteria for students to be aware of. I'd like you to
0: tell me about your role as legislative and policy director at FIRE. Uh, it conjures up a slight notion of a guy going around uh, with a satchel with model legislation in it and visiting state legislators
1: and telling them what FIRE's advice is. Part of the role is in government relations, making sure that you get the word out to lawmakers who are thinking of getting involved in these issues in higher ed, and advising them on good ways, thoughtful ways to approach the issue that will be helpful and expand the free speech and due process rights of everyone. So what do you
0: do? Let's say you're arriving in Nashville, Tennessee, which is one of the places I
1: think your fire is particularly proud of your work. What do you do when you get to town? Usually, we'll meet with a bill sponsor. We'll talk to them about the legislation. And And have you provided the bill in advance? It depends on which one of the situations. We don't go to seek out legislative sponsors. They come to us. And what's interesting about that is that we dance with the ones who brung us. And when someone decides to introduce legislation, we'll usually, uh, I'll register as a lobbyist in that state, we'll engage and we'll talk to them about what we can do to help make the case uh, for the legislation if if we like it. If we have concerns about the legislation, we have conversations in depth with them about where we see room for improvement, where we see potential pitfalls and problems with the bills. At the end of the day, we're hoping to get the constitutional lines exactly right in every piece of legislation that we speak on. So you don't don't come with a model statute? uh... We do a bit of that too. We're happy to share what we've done in the past that's been successful. We have a bill that I'm particularly proud of called the Campus Free Expression Act, a CAFE, if you will and it's designed to eliminate free speech zones on campus. So it's not tackling every kind of campus censorship, but a common form of campus censorship that we know that we can successfully eliminate statutorily.
0: So please explain to me why you want to eliminate campus free speech zones. What so, it is that you find objectionable about sure. them.
1: So for your listeners, I want to make sure they understand first and foremost that the phrase free speech zone is really quite misleading. They're really quarantine zones. They're places where it's the only spot on campus students are allowed to engage. Is that always the case? Yeah, pretty exclusively. They're designed to be the one place where free speech rights you know, are supposed to exist according to these policies, where when you're outside of them, the rights are much more limited. That's not the way it's supposed to operate in a society where you're expecting your universities to be you know, true marketplaces of ideas, the kind of places where you have free exchange of of ideas and thought. Some of these free speech zones are quite comical. We challenged years ago the free speech gazebo at Texas Tech, a university that had 28,000 students enrolled, but you could only exercise your free speech rights if you reserved the gazebo.
0: I've heard some people defend free speech zones as a kind of like speaker's corner in Hyde Park in London, famous place where people come and sometimes literally set up a soapbox uh, or a, an orange crate to stand on and people come and listen to them or don't come and listen to them as they want to, but as a as a kind of speaker's corner, a modern speaker's corner.
1: Yeah, and that's fine if you want to promote a location where you'd rather people engage in that behavior, but it's not okay when it's the only location people are allowed to engage in the behavior, and that's a really important So these are
0: nuances, and not every place that has a free speech zone is necessarily what you're describing
1: some of them might actually be robust locations where a vast vast majority use it in the restrictive way and that's really the problem that we have and we have one in ten institutions in the country maintain free speech zones and what that tells me is is two things one is that ninety percent of institutions don't have them and the sky hasn't fallen but it also tells me it's still a significant problem the other ninety percent they could be places where every place is a
0: free speech zone or they could be places where no place is a free speech zone
1: no that's not how, the, how they're really how with, up, with, the, with the policies really the key here is that open outdoor areas should be regulated the same way open outdoor areas would be regulated off of campus which isn't anything and everything goes tell me about some of the
0: particular victories, if you will, in state legislatures that you feel proud
1: of on behalf of FIRE. Virginia was the first bill uh, that we got passed to eliminate free speech zones uh, on campus. Right after we got that bill passed... This is fairly recent, signed by Governor McAuliffe? Yes. After it was passed, in a December editorial in the Wall Street Journal, that bill was called the single biggest victory for free speech advocates in the country for the year. What are some of the other states that, besides Virginia where you're right. proud of your work? So after Virginia we had a string of successes um, Missouri in particular and then we started seeing some states introducing acts without reaching out to us just you know liking what they saw in the other states in using language, and that happened, you know, for example, in Arizona. In some ways I'm also very proud of of that, that people are seeing that the work is viable, seeing that the work is important, and moving forward, and, you know, we've had great success there. We've had Colorado and Utah both passed CAFE acts in this last session, Tennessee passed a really comprehensive uh, free speech bill that really in many ways advanced the ball to defeat a a number of additional forms of censorship on college campuses. For example? In addition to tackling free speech zones it also uh, defined harassment using the Supreme Court case law as opposed to the hodgepodge of definitions that we're seeing coming out of schools across the country and that's really important because Overbroad harassment codes are the single most common way that we see censorship on college campuses. Now,
0: overbroad harassment codes, is that what a lot of people would think of as attempts to control hate speech?
1: A lot of people I think would, would would put it in that category. I think that the key for everyone to remember is that harassment isn't protected speech when it actually meets constitutional definitions. And the Supreme Court has given a constitutional definition and over and over and over again courts strike down codes that don't apply that definition faithfully and it's almost shocking how many schools continue to and to, that definition is what precisely so the definition comes from a case called davis versus monroe county board of education to 1999 case it says that sexual harassment in particular must be targeted at a member of a protected class so on the basis of gender in that instance of sexual harassment and has to be objectively offensive to a reasonable person severe and pervasive to a degree that it actually prevents the target from enjoying one of the benefits of the institution that's what limits a policy from targeting the kind of behavior that we do want to prevent Repeated, objectively offensive behavior that really is both severe and pervasive, as of, as opposed to preventing behaviors that might be rude and obnoxious, but that you expect people to engage in as they disagree and as they and as they learn in a learning environment. Right.
0: Imagine, if you will, for a moment, a circumstance in which someone is invited to speak where there is a plausible reason to predict violence, and an institution or its president or its board or somebody is worried about violence, is worried about physical harm to people.
1: Is that not an appropriate time to disinvite a speaker? So there are two f- phases of the analysis that the courts really say you have to go through. The first thing is you need to figure out whether you're concerned about the speaker engaging in you know, unprotected speech itself because a lot of people claim that some of the speech a speaker will engage in is you know hate speech and therefore they shouldn't be allowed on campus and of course the courts have not recognized hate speech right. as an unprotected well, category I'm speaking for the moment about
0: physical harm right. not, not psychological well i
1: want well right i want to talk about the, the two phases the first right. is are they actually engaging in unprotected speech true threats for example you know which are carefully defined by uh, virginia versus black as having an intent to actually cause someone to reasonably right. believe that they're gonna be actually physically harmed. Um, harassment, as we've already discussed, fighting words, or a few other categories of unprotected speech. You know, the courts have been, been very uh, disapproving of prior restraints of analyzing what people will say in advance for good that. reason. The second step of the analysis is audience reaction, which has also historically been disfavored as an analysis, but where the case law has been pretty thoughtful is dealing with really real life, serious, dangerous situations, Uh, in a manner that isn't just hypothetical but gives thoughtful kind of tools for governments to figure out what they can and can't do. And that's why they go under strict scrutiny and that they don't, you know, after the fact you can look at what a government actor did and said did they take reasonable steps to protect someone exercising their constitutional rights first? Because if they didn't, and you go back to the 1960s in Alabama, they would have used public riots as a means right. to justify shutting down the civil rights movement. Right.
0: Let's look at the events in Charlottesville in August 2017, mm-hmm. Charlottesville, Virginia. Not strictly speaking a university case mm-hmm. although they did impinge and fringe upon the university's boundaries in that case, but there were people who came there White supremacists, white nationalists labeled racist, many of the people. I think we can say that about the Ku Klux Klan, for example. I have no problem calling the Klan racist. Right. They came here looking for trouble. And there there's some been some videos and some things in which they've spoken, in which they've said, We came here to fight and famous scene where one of the leaders is taking the five weapons out of his clothes and after things are over. Would we might have saved a life and quite a few injuries, perhaps, if stricter standards had been applied to
1: that rally, to that protest effort. I think it still needed to be evaluated under actual true threat doctrine before you engage in prior restraints. When someone comes in and at that point talking about, you know, weapons and, and there to fight, you have maybe a stronger basis in that particular well, narrow instance, but. It can't be used as a blanket broad justification for saying that members of the Klan or other racists can't hold their rallies. Right. Um, No, I understand that. But what we have
0: here is for, you know, it's not an ideal situation, but we have afterwards, we have the results on which we evaluate this. And so the question is, what level of results or what level of harm would it take to create some corollary to the standard that says, you know, if you have some reason to believe, even a slight reason to believe, that there might be violence, that this is not protected speech anymore. Well,
1: you can't use only a slight reason to believe, because in that instance, you would have had a slight reason to believe that there may have been violence in the civil rights movement in the South again. And, you know, and certainly people could have been and were hurt. Uh, engaging in obviously clear protected you know speech to try to change the way our country views race relations and defeat segregation. You have uh, a list
0: I guess it's called a disinvitation database uh, where speakers have been disinvited from campuses or protested in some way Uh, I don't know if it's in advance or only during the appearance Uh, but it does seem to be that most of the speakers on that list were protested by students from the left, not from the right. Do you think this is representative of what's happening in the country? Because there are some examples that are, for example, not in that database where people were intimidated from speaking or invitations were withdrawn of speakers on the left that were protested from the so right.
1: Please let us know if you see things that aren't in the database. Well, two so we come to, add- to mind.
0: Uh, one one is a Princeton professor named uh, Kianga Yamata Taylor, who uh, spoke at a commencement speech at uh, Hampshire College in Massachusetts, and then had several other invitations withdrawn after some cell phone video was circulated and broadcast on Fox News, et cetera. Yeah, we've spoken
1: up on that on that case too. But it's I, not, I, not in your database. I don't know how often we update the, data, the database, but uh, but I'll be consulting with my colleagues about that to see. Uh, to see what's going on there. What I can tell you in terms of the representative nature of it is that we don't view campus censorship in in, in strictly partisan terms because censorship is not really a partisan tool. People censor who they disagree with. But But, But if you do the head count of just where the cases are coming from in recent modern times, more of the censorship does happen to come from the left because they happen to have leadership from the left of or universities. Or the attempts at censorship. Right, the, right, and the attempts at censorship because the leadership of more universities in 2017 tends to come from that direction on the political spectrum. So the, the perception that, that they will succeed because you're appealing to you, know, to you know, the confirmation bias of the people in leadership is, is kind of powerful. But I would also point out to anyone who's, who's watching the program that there are plenty of examples of censorship that come from conservatives too. Yes, they can don't try- get as much. They don't get as much attention or as much publicity. We, we give them as much attention and address them as forcefully as we can too, because to us this is not a partisan issue. So you don't think there's a risk of fire coming to
0: be identified with the right side of the political spectrum when it purports to be a nonpartisan organization?
1: Well, I don't think we just purport to be a nonpartisan organization. I can tell you from my experience that my colleagues okay. and my board are evenly divided along the political spectrum. And I can tell you in the way that we behave that we tackle cases regardless of where they come. I mean, I've had- But back to
0: my question. Is there a risk right, of uh, your being perceived as defending the right, the the, the right side of the political I don't spectrum think it's rather just, the left?
1: I don't think it's just a risk in terms of the perception because we get the accusations all of the time. But interestingly enough, at our holiday party each year, we read the hate mail that we get from various people throughout the year. And we have two lines, people reading letters that come from people from the left accusing us of being uh, conservative shells, and letters from the right accusing us of being pinko commie liberals. And we alternate because we get, we get both, because we, we defend people and we have defended people from every side of every controversial culture war issue that, that's happened. We've defended pro-choice uh, people and pro-life people. We've defended pro-gun people and pro-gun control people. You name it, we've we've been on the front lines. Uh, but, but the risk is there because when you just do the head count of the cases, more of the cases happen to be of conservatives being censored. What do you think overall FIRE's
0: impact has been since it appeared on the scene and and try to do this. Are,
1: are, are you more of a lightning rod today than you than you were originally? I'm really proud of what we've been able to accomplish. We've had a tremendous amount of success in reducing the the number of unconstitutional policies at, at, uh, at institutions of higher education. The issue itself uh, is now one of the most prominent issues in the country. I don't know if that would have been the case without our involvement.
0: Joe Cohn is the Legislative and Policy Director for the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, or FIRE, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that defends free speech and due process for students and faculty on college campuses around the United States. For an extended version of our conversation, as well as other conversations about contemporary free speech issues, you can visit the Speaking Freely section of our website, freespeechproject.georgetown.com. Our project is funded by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. I'm Sanford Unger. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Speaking Freely.